Hello, fellow foodies. This is Cassandra Quaid, your host for Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. So as an ethnobotanist, I'm absolutely fascinated with the ways that humans relate to and transform plant ingredients from the natural world. It's an incredible thing to learn how humans have sorted through nearly 400,000 species of plants and have determined which plants are useful as foods, medicines, tools, and much, much more. And when it comes to food, despite access to what feels like every type of cuisine that we see globally, our modern diets are less varied than ever. Of more than 6,000 species of plants that were once consumed by humans, only nine remain staples today. And of those, rice, wheat, and corn now make up half of all of our calories. The world is currently at a crisis point with 1 million plant and animal species extinction. But there are those who are fighting to save these species, dedicating their lives to not only capturing this traditional knowledge, but also preserving the species, their ecosystems in which they persist, and their amazing flavors when it comes to foods that could greatly enhance the human diet. My guest today is the award-winning journalist, Dan Saladino. He's the author of a really amazing new book called Eating to Extinction, the world's rarest foods and why we need to save them. In writing this book, Dan traveled the world to document these vanishing foods and food cultures and explain why they are essential to our survival. As he journeys from Oaxaca, Mexico to Okinawa, Japan, and even more remote corners of the world, Dan also shares with us the stories of pioneering farmers, scientists, cooks, food producers, and indigenous communities that are preserving food traditions and fighting for their endangered foods. The future of our planet depends on reclaiming genetic biodiversity before it is too late. And as Dan writes in the book's introduction, you can help too by finding the foods that are endangered in your area, whether an apple variety or a local cheese. By eating these, you can help to save them. Such foods represent much more than sustenance. They are history, identity, pleasure, culture, geography, genetics, science, creativity, and craft. And I think that's such a, a great way to introduce our guests. So thanks so much for coming on the show today, Dan. I loved your book, and I know awesome. that our audience is going to love meeting you and learning more. Thank you very much, Cassandra. And I've been listening to the previous editions and I can see how this fits in not only with your work, but the other conversations you've been having in recent episodes. Thank you. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that, that our audience is really interested in is really developing a better understanding of how the health of our planet is tied to human health. And I think maybe we could start with a discussion of one of the most shocking numbers that you mentioned in your book, um, and that is that out of 6,000 species of plants that have, were once consumed by humans, we now rely on just nine, nine species. So how did that happen? And what are the major risks of ant on such a small, small pool of species? Mm. Uh, there are various timescales I work in. Uh, with the book and in some cases i need to go back three and a half billion years in some cases it's two million years and the origins of of um our humans um three hundred thousand years homo sapiens and then ten twelve thousand years the birth of agriculture really and how that unfolds 
the reason why those timescales are important is because I was interested in how did we end up with these, inheriting these riches of all of this diversity. So I was interested in the origins of these wild grasses that became crops that then were somehow domesticated by the earliest farmers in the Fertile Crescent or maize in southern Mexico and rice in, in China. Um, and the idea that as humans spread uh, uh, from those, what Vavilov would call yeah. centers of origin or mm -hmm. centers of diversity, how those, how, how those plants adapted, not only to the environmental um, conditions, but also the cultural ones as well, and these different preferences that as, as people moved around the world and they took the seeds with them, how we ended up with this um, incredible, beautiful diversity. And so, as, as you know, in the Arctic Circle, uh, deep in the ice is, is um, the seed vault uh, on the island of Svalbard, where there are hundreds of thousands of unique samples of, of wheat and maize and rice. And, and that collection is the record of the diversity that your ancestors, my ancestors, created over those thousands of years. And um, all of so many of these plants were adapted to local conditions and, and needs. Hence, there was this um, huge diversity that you mentioned of, of all these thousands of plants that were domesticated. In a sense, the, the narrowing of diversity on one level can be seen as a success story. Over the last couple of hundred years, as we've been able to not only industrialize societies more generally with science and technology, we've also done the same with food and we've we've produced huge increasing amounts of calories to the yeah. world and we've done that by focusing on these high yielding um and and uh, increasingly um uh yeah successfully bred modern varieties um but that's catching up with us now uh, and so that boom that post-war boom that we now refer to as the um Green Revolution, uh, but also earlier at the beginning of the 20th century with the development of, of um, plant breeding and the understanding of genetics. That gave us a toolkit to try and create these huge yields and all of these calories. And it seemed um, to many to work. And it staved off starvation in some parts of the world. It created an abundance of cheap food. But as we know, there is always a catch. Um, it was too good to be true. And there's been huge cost of that system that is so young and so new and novel in the context of our evolution. It's impacted on our health. And increasingly, we understand the costs to planetary health as well in terms of the energy required, the water mm -hmm. used, the soil being depleted, and also the fact that the uniformity in these crops is going to be a huge challenge to future food security because there are no monocultures in nature. And yeah. so diseases are catching up and overwhelming some of the world's most important crops that are now genetically quite narrow and based on a small number of varieties. Yeah, that's, that's such a really amazing point. I mean, I think most of our listeners can think back to grade school when we learned about the Irish potato family, which was 
a great example of you know where you have lack of diversity we know the crop center of origins of potatoes is in the andes mm -hmm. um but you know what's amazing is there's there's huge diversity especially historically in that region when it comes to different varieties of potatoes but when i go to yeah. the grocery store i only see a few different you know potatoes and i feel like we're almost given this illusion of diversity in our in our food access mm. can, can yeah. you talk a bit more about that like yeah and, and that's happening? a really yeah that's a really important point because i think many people listening watching will be thinking well that that's not my experience in a sense that and i make this case in the book that um our generation uh and and people alive today in, can enjoy a huge amount of diversity that perhaps they think their grandparents um didn't enjoy Mm -hmm. um, two points on that, really. One is um, that's true. Um, we live in a, a global a global economy, and we can move th move foods around the world. So the risk is this: it's the same kind of diversity that's spreading around the world wherever you are. So in the in the same way that languages and fashion and music are spreading, mm -hmm. so are the same uh, food. Um, uh, types of food, the same seeds, plants, animal breeds. Mm -hmm. This uniformity is spreading. The second point is, I, in the book, I'm delving deep into the the building blocks of the food system, and so I am interested in the um, the things that that don't really become apparent when you're shopping in a supermarket, which is the yeah wheat, rice, maize. What, mm -hmm. What's the genetic diversity um, within that crop? Uh, and for that, you really need to, to look at the history. Um, and so what, what I do also is tell the origin story yeah. of these foods, how they were um, domesticated, where, how, um, and what, and how was diversity created uh, um, uh, over time? Um, and yeah, I, 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 th I think it, it the, the, the shrinking of that diversity um, matters because in some cases, we, we don't really understand the value of what's being lost. And so I tell yeah. the story of a type of maize that's growing in Oaxaca um, in Mexico, uh, high up in a, in a remote mountainous area. And it was, um, it, botanists encountered this at, at the end of the 1970s. It, it took um, 40 years for them to unpick why was this maize growing in such a difficult area? The soil wasn't good, mm -hmm. um, you know, not, not many nutrients feeding the plant. And also when they, when they encountered the, this, this maize, it was 16 feet tall. Um, wow. It was, oozing, it was oozing mucus from these aerial roots that were coming out above ground. It turns, it turns out that this, um, I mean, it, it, it took scientists, um, it involved new um, uh, science Re recently. Um, mm -hmm. uh, um, I, I think I remember but, this paper yeah. coming out recently a few, a few years ago. Amazing. I mean, it's, it's. Um, yeah. 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 So w because of this success of these high yielding crops that managed to spread mm -hmm. around the world and overwhelm the, the, these uh, local food systems where there is diversity, we are losing things that we now realize that we will need in the future. And so um, that maize, for example, could be a way in which in the future, um, uh, sorry, I, I missed a really crucial point here, that the, the mucus that was oozing 
um, was full of microbes and bacteria that was helping the plant feed itself, um, mm. uh, you know, through a process of, of taking um, nitrogen um, from the from the air. And, and, and this was, um, to, to many botanists, unheard of in, in, in maize. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's groundbreaking, but it was so endangered that, that only a few villages had clung on to that, um, that type of maize. You mentioned the potato. Um, and again, in Ireland in the 19th century, that yeah, they were growing the lumper potato year in, year out in the same soil. And the fungal mm-hmm. disease caught up, and and obviously we know what happened. Uh, a million people died. Many more had to leave Ireland, um, and uh, it, the population has never really recovered, which is fascinating. Scientists are still dealing with that disease, and for the solutions, they are now going to the place in which the um, uh, the the potato was domesticated. They, they're they're looking at the diversity in the Andes for the mm-hmm. traits that will give greater resistance or pot- perhaps potatoes and other tubers that can grow um, where there is less water or that there are um, you know, climatic shocks. Um, so we need to know the story of where those foods come from because of that diversity that could, can still exist in those, set, in those places of origin because of those traits that have been bred out of these mm. monocultures that we've created. So diversity increasingly matters for our food yeah. future. That's such a great point. I mean, I see this all the time on the small scale in traditional villages where farmers don't grow just one variety of a crop. They grow multiple varieties. And some of those varieties, mm. by the way, have some unpleasant characteristics. I'm thinking one example of another tuber, like in the Amazon, is bitter cassava. Um, which mm-hmm. is Manahot esculenta, bitter manioc or bitter cassava has higher levels of hydrogen cyanide, which you're like, why would you grow food with cyanide? Well, it's it, it better withstands some of these pests and you can basically um, process the food to remove the cyanide. But there, there are even other tubers I think really have not made it mainstream. And one in particular that I enjoyed reading about was mm-hmm. oka. So what can you tell us about oka? And that's spelled O-C-A for all the listeners. Yeah. I would love to talk about uh, oka, oka, uh, um, as I as mm-hmm. I sometimes call it as well. Can I just put a word in for the cassava story? Oh yes, well? please, please. Sorry, it's I jumped simply ahead. Simply because I, I'm not in the book just talking about the importance uh, importance of genetic diversity. I'm also mm-hmm. telling the story of these incredible, ingenious ways humans have survived around the world. Yes, and the skills and the knowledge that took thousands of years and many generations. To develop and that process that you mentioned of making something that is potentially toxic safe and using processes such as fermentation to do that mm-hmm. completely mind-blowing, uh, mind-blowing uh, how that yeah. happened um, and we are at, you know we are at risk not only of losing the genetic material but also the knowledge and the skills and the cultures that enabled that to happen the same is true of of um, the oka as well so it's it's a it's a tuber that was domesticated a bit further north in the in the andes uh, than the potato um smaller it looks like a it, kind of bullet sized um uh, mm-hmm. and they can be purple and yellow um and again there's this challenge of um of bitterness in in these um in the oka which again gives it a defense mechanism um and there and what i saw when i traveled through the Andes was this, this um, process in which they took these small tubers, 
and they took took it through a process of soaking it in water in these um, uh, pools that they'd created beside a river and they would soak there for a month or perhaps six weeks. They would then take um, the, the, the um, ochre uh, in sackfuls, which now had a lot of the bitterness leached out of it, and they would mm -hmm. take it to a high altitude and they would spread it out and then in the process of the sun coming up and then in the evening it cools down, it, 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 it um, uh, took the water out of the tuber and created these dry parched tubers which were then taken back to the village and then ground down and then turned into these cakes effectively that could be stored for months if not years a huge important source of, of carbohydrate and other um, other nutrients as well um, and also delicious once <laughs> that process had happened um, and I there was a, a, a botanist who um, from the States who who's been traveling through the Andes um, who I had a conversation with because um, I mean the the ochre is is a, is a lot less understood than the potato you know, it's just one of those it's almost like an orphan crop in a way yeah. uh and so eve uh M. Schwiller, who's who yes. um, features in in the book wonderful woman who's traveled to you know through bolivia uh and uh peru um saving diversity because she told me the story of of having conversations with um truck drivers who are arriving in the remote villages encouraging um with, with all good intention encouraging farmers to start growing a, a pop a very popular potato for people in the cities and so what what was happening is this huge diversity was disappearing mm. in these andean villages um and they were being replaced by a crop that they needed to have chemical inputs to grow um and so yeah eve was there documenting and doing what she could with the, the various governments to try and save diversity. That's amazing. Yeah, Eve's also a fellow ethnobotanist and doing amazing work. I need to get her on the show, actually. This has got me thinking about it. It'd be great to have a whole episode on it. Okay. It's, um, it is an interesting crop. And it's, 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 again, that question of like, you know, what, what makes a crop successful of, of making that leap into global trade? Right. And, it, and then going back to cassava, I mean, this is one of the most popular, you know, crops throughout the tropics across the Americas and into Africa. And yet you don't really see it as much in trade. I mean, you see a little bit in circulation in, in stores in the U.S. I don't know if it's really sold in the U.K. or Europe, but um, mm. yeah, I don't. I don't know. Only in small work. amount. In, yeah. yeah. And, and mm -hmm. mostly where there are communities who, who have a relationship with that food. But yeah. uh, there are many neglected crops that that have huge potential, uh, which is why I ended up speaking to, um, in the case of, of the UK, um, people at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Kew mm -hmm. um, and the teams of botanists there and the people who who really are scouring the world looking for these um, neglected uh, or forgotten crops and traveling through parts of Africa and Asia and seeing what they can do to try and make them more economically viable and also trying to inform people that actually there are different ways of processing them and um uh, you know and cooking them uh, there 
there is a story that's missing from the book that that I took out because there were it was just getting too big and there were too many stories and and, and I think my editor felt that uh, it, uh, the reader was going to be overwhelmed. But it's a really important story and perhaps I'm going to be you know I'll save it for book two. But it's the story of millets in India. Uh, yes. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. a huge historically a, a really important crop, um, and I think various studies have been done that if you actually replaced a lot of the uh, wheat and rice in India, then you would it would be win 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 in terms of nutrition, uh, in terms of water, in in terms of soil health. But it 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 fell out of favour, and a lot of this is to do with colonialism when the British arrived, mm-hmm. and they introduced a lot of um, uh, wheat um, wheat varieties um, that they had been researching. So now millet, millets are very difficult to process, or more difficult to process than mm-hmm. a lot of other crops. But the technology now exists. For that to yeah. be um, to be less arduous and to be speeded up, so I think it's it's in the twenty first century we can apply science and technology to these forgotten crops, and and perhaps there is a a, a new era in which they can be um, foods again for yeah. many many millions, if not billions, of people. That's great. Well, one thing I also appreciate in your book, I mean, I could talk all day, every day about plants, <laughs> but I, I also appreciate your, your addressing um, the subject of meat and mm. some of these um, livestock. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your um, chapter on bison. Mm. Kind of... Yeah. Cause what, what I try and do in the, in the meat section is um, a couple of things. One, one is to say that the process that we've just been talking about that, mm-hmm homogenization of food around the world and the uniformity genetic uniformity of plants the same exactly the same thing has happened uh, with livestock as well which is why 95 percent of the dairy herd in the states is one breed of cow the holstein Um, and again so we've seen that decline in in um, genetic diversity Um, but at the same time i also wanted to tell stories that that reminded us of what our relationship over um, again millennia has been with animals mm-hmm. uh, and so I tell the story of um, of uh, the chicken of pig uh, mm-hmm. of the way in which people in very difficult re- cold harsh parts of northern Europe um, fermented sheep meat um, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah in that chapter I also want to tell the story of how that relationship really um, saw a complete absence of reverence and respect for animals. And I think the bison is such a powerful story of how in such a short period of time from the beginning of the 19th towards the end of the 19th century, um, that various pressures were bearing down yeah. um, on, on this on, on this animal. Um, and also it, it kind of it tells us that process of humans dominating nature, of greed, mm-hmm. of industrial processes by which it was it became possible through rail networks and the technology of the gun and horse as well to slaughter millions mm-hmm. and millions of bison that had been um, roaming through, that, through across the central plains um, for hundreds of thousands of years. Um, and in a sense, by the beginning of the 20th century, it's all. it also tells the story of the beginnings of the conservation movement of a small group of 
yeah. of people who understood what was happening to gather together the, the, the relatively tiny number of bison that had survived and have these conservation herds. Mm -hmm. The problem was because they felt that they needed a quick fix, it, there was a lot of breeding with cattle. Mm. And so what's happening now um, in the recovery of the bison is that, that uh, through DNA testing, um, increasingly um, bison breeders are now able to try and get us back to a position where we have pure bison herds. And so I went to um, Zapata Ranch in um, southwestern Colorado and saw some of that process happening. And um, again, it's just such a moving, powerful story of what we are capable of you know, in terms of the destruction of, of, of nature, but also the fact that there are so many amazing people who are doing this work to, yeah. bring, to bring these endangered crops and animals back. Yeah, this, this reminds me of, a, of another author I interviewed. I think it was two seasons ago. I don't know if you're familiar with um, Gina Ray LaServa's book, Feasting Wild, but it yeah. was just shocking to me the level of destruction that had been wreaked upon not only, you know, wildlife, I mean, and just thinking about in the Americas, the birds that were slaughtered and also sea turtles in the Caribbean that were, you know, a big part of the transatlantic slave trade and how, how all this kind of came together. And as, as a result, I mean, we've never really recovered our, those populations mm. of those wild animals. And there are some important lessons there. You know? And also, yeah, absolutely. And I think there's also something really deep about the relationship um, bec between us, these animals, and an ecosystem. Because mm -hmm. the bison, uh, we, we think of, of the bison roaming and, and, you know, and they were hunted and they were a source of food and, and, and obviously their, their skins were useful as well. I mean, every part of the bison was valuable. Uh, to the Native American people mm -hmm. um, for, for thousands of years. Um, but they were also animals that, that um, were part of a system in which, yeah. they, you know, from fertilizer to the spreading of seeds, uh, birds were dependent on them, other animals were dependent. They were part of an entire complex ecosystem. Take out the bison and then so much else of that system um, fails. But also there's that part of that system were human beings. So when yeah. I spoke to one of the breeders who was um, reintroducing bison to the Great Plains, she described this most moving scene in which people had gathered to see her free the bison that she had bred, these bison babies that she'd been looking after. And there was a ceremony uh, of uh, some of the tribes close to where she was mm -hmm. working who were there, um, who had a, an extremely intimate and close relationship with the bison still. And they were beating drums and singing a ceremonial song. And she she knew the the way in which these bison um, uh, behaved. And she was surprised to see that when the song and the, the drum beat started, everything fell silent, including the bison. It's, wow. It was almost as if there was some connection being made between the humans and the bison that we could never possibly explain. But equally moving is when the bison started to leave their confine comfort the confines that pe hundreds of people had gathered to watch this happening and the sight of these bison leaving and then entering this landscape made people break down and cry 
Mm. And again, there's just something extremely deep about that relationship between us, nature, and these animals. And it, and it doesn't take much to remind us that that was the case. Yeah, now you, you, you put it so eloquently. I mean, I think too often today we see humans apart from nature instead of recognizing our role in nature. And, and mm. as you said, you know, there have been systems of traditional land management that have gone on for millennia successfully, sustainably, that had integration of these plants and different livestock that was all part of an integrated system that, mm. that provided food. Yeah, I mean, I tell the story in a wild section. I mean, the wild section, just to explain mm -hmm. that there are 10 parts in the book and it goes from wild to cereals. Um, to fruit, to uh, animals, as you say, and food from the sea. Um, that that sequence at the beginning of the book, from wild to cereals, it also has the chronology of us being hunter-gatherers into mm -hmm. farmers. And so the book starts with the Hadza um, hunter-gatherers in Tanzania, in eastern Africa. And I, I tell the story of their relationship with honey and also a bird that guides them to the honey as well, the honey guide I bird, indicator, indicator. And again, that's the story of not only just... Um, biodiversity being lost and their land being um, lost, but also knowledge skills that could be could have been uh, developing for seven hundred thousand years. Uh, we think that 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 um, relationship between humans being whistled to a bird to, for the bird to then show them where the honey is could date back to the origins of humans using fire. Uh, again, just another mind blowing story. But the second story is from Australia. And you mention about indigenous knowledge and land management. Mm -hmm. Well, there I tell the story of this a very small root called, they, called a yam daisy or myrnong. Very sweet, almost coconut flavoured root. And this was the go-to food for many people mm -hmm. in southern Australia, again, before the, uh, the colonists, the British, arrived. And uh, what happened when the British arrived is that the sheep and the cattle that they introduced in in vast numbers, just tore through the landscape and completely wow. changed that landscape and depleted this food resource for the mm. Aboriginal people. Um, but Murnong was almost semi-domesticated because the Aboriginal people were using fire to, to manage the land, mm -hmm. to clear um, tracks of, um, of, of some of the um, other plants, to make space and to provide sunlight for the, for the Murnong as well. And when, and when the, um, I don't know if you, just a few years back when Australia was really hit hard by these awful fires, yeah. um, some of the um, areas where the Aboriginal people were still practicing fire management, they were not as badly affected because they, they'd created these breaks in the land where the fire couldn't spread. And again, the, one of the arguments in the book is that we cannot ignore this knowledge and these resources that took thousands and thousands of years to create and then dismiss them. And in some yeah. cases, dismiss them as being primitive. Um, and, and, and we are learning that there is so much wisdom and, um, but it shouldn't be surprising because it, it kept humans alive for so long. Yeah. Um, we're the ones <laughs> who are in a precarious situation now. Yeah. Oh, that, yeah. I mean, that's, that's been shown. I mean, also, here in the states i mean there are some amazing studies looking at f traditional fire management practices with landscapes and how you know when you have a buildup of 
you know, foliage and dead material over time, that's when you get the, you know, the huge wildfires that are really damaging to, to cities. Um, yeah, this is a, this is a really important aspect of the traditional land management. It's not, it's, you know, it's all very integrated. You have the, the genetic material, the biodiversity of the genetic material is important. The human knowledge of how to transform that material or that ingredient into a foodstuff that could last or could promote health. Um, and then, you know, how do you manage this whole ecosystem? I mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly complex and definitely not primitive on any scale. I mean, it's this complex ecology. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, um, and at the same time, I can understand why it was that in the, in particularly in the 19th and the 20th century with these inventions and discoveries and developments that people felt they'd found the answer that mm -hmm. actually some of these technologies that that could override natural systems um were a fix but uh, but nature is catching up with us and we now understand that many of the solutions we found were quite well not quite but extremely reductionist mm -hmm. and that nature will always catch up because it is as you say so complex and interconnected and so for us to then um create silos in which we are selecting um you know, a, a very small, narrow genetic pool, and then using these inputs to override all of those other natural systems. So lack of nutrients or lack of water or, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, it, we are run, as I say in the book, we are, we are farming on borrowed time now in many cases. Yeah. Uh, well, some of our, I think some of the plants that all of our listeners know and love and probably consume on a daily basis are at risk. I mean, I don't know. I, I probably need to do a show on becoming mm -hmm. banana popcalypse of, you know, <laughs> with this, 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 again, another fungal disease because we clonally propagate bananas across the globe. Coffee mm -hmm. is also at risk. And I know you have a chapter looking into coffee and its origins. I mean, it's amazing the, the fact that we do have so little genetic diversity when it comes to coffee and also for chocolate. Um, yeah, yeah, I wonder, yeah. can you tell us a little bit about your section on stimulants? Because I mean, these are some of our most important mm. kind of, you know, foodstuffs, coffee, tea, chocolate, all these sources of, you know, I'll get geeky here with my pharmacology of those you know, <laughs> xanthine alkaloids that stimulate the brain and make us very happy. Um, mm. but, but what's going on with those and what did you learn in your investigation on these stimulants? Mm. Yeah, well, I'm a huge, huge coffee fan. Uh, for personal mm -hmm. reasons so in terms of my consumption <laughs> my, you know that, and how lucky we are to have that um, crop um, but uh, yeah again like so many of the other foods I wanted to go to the origins and mm -hmm. so I uh, there are some great experts in the UK based as I, I mentioned before um, Royal Botanic Gardens Q one of them is called Aaron uh, Davies mm -hmm. um, he he travels through uh, parts of Ethiopia um, which is considered to be the center of origin for Arabica, so the, the most important coffee crop globally. Um, and and this, um, the story of how coffee um, leaves its center of origin in, the, in these wild um, for, coffee forests, effectively, mm -hmm. where people live, have lived alongside coffee plants for, for thousands of years, end up in Yemen, um, which is yeah. just over a stretch of water to the east of Ethiopia. And then in the um, 
uh, in the 17th century, um, a small number of plants start to escape with Europeans and then are taken around the world, creating the coffee types that we have today. Um, and so that explains this, na this narrow genetic base that is around the coffee belt of the equator. Mm -hmm. um, and Aaron Davis has also done work looking at what will be the impact of climate change on that um, very small genetic pool. And uh, Arabic is quite a delicate plant. And so um, that's why that's one of the reasons why it's at, at risk and it might not have the genetic, um, the, you know, the, all of the traits that exist in the wild that have been uh, that are absent from that small selection that was spread around the world, um, that, that creates a vulnerable crop. But also, I think back in 2014, um, in parts of the Americas, uh, it was hit again by one of these fungal diseases. Um, mm -hmm. La Roya, the farmers called it, or rust. Mm -hmm. Devastating disease, really hit, hit yields hard. And again, showing the impact not only of climate change, so the climatic conditions were were right for that disease to spread, but also there wasn't much resistance in the crop and also the way in which they are planted quite close together um, uh, as well. So again, it's just, as you, you mentioned, the banana as well, we, the, all of these solutions that we came up with have created coffee that could be sold around the world and you can have a cup of coffee for a, you know, a couple of dollars or a couple of pounds yeah. or, and the banana, amazingly is one of the cheapest things in the supermarket yeah. you know a, a fruit from a, a tropical a, a tropical <laughs> country but uh, all of this has been done through the success of these monocultures effectively um and uh yeah climate change and then the impact on farming communities and then we see people devast communities devastated and hit hard by the consequences of these systems and then we see migration, unsurprisingly, yeah. that they, they, they are forced to leave their homes in, you know, in search of work and, and su effectively survival. So everything is connected. Yeah. Wow. Well, one of the places that you talk about in the book, which is, again, one of those very remote and kind of fragile ecosystems, is also a place I just love. Um, it's the, I think it's chapter 26 on the Accursed Mountains. Mm -hmm. So this is known, and I'm probably going to butcher the name in Albania, but Bejete Nemuna is, there's actually a large national park. And I was just there in 2019 on the Kosovar side. Um, of this region. And I mean, gorgeous mountains, very, very rugged, very difficult to access. Some of the roads are, are you know, kind of more of like a dirt path than really a road, <laughs> but just I mean, amazing streams, crystal clear streams. And the food is, is to die for. Now, this is in the section on cheese. Mm. And I think I may have eaten the cheese that you talk about. It's kind of very salty cheese in this region. Yeah. What can you share with us about this? Because it also comes back to this idea of fermentation of the microbiome mm. and how people use microbes from their environment to transform foods. Mm. Well, the, che the cheese, the cheese section is one of my favorites. And that particular story means a lot to me because uh, I was told um, by a chef in Albania that um, diplomats, when they're, when they're um, uh, posted to Albania, mm -hmm. they cry twice. 
uh, the first time they cry because they say, well, why have I been posted to Albania, this this remote, obscure country very few people have heard of, and it had this troubled past of communist mm. rule um, uh, that closed it off for many, many decades. Mm -hmm. um, so they cry once when they arrive, but they cry the second time when they leave because it's such a beautiful country and culture. It is. And, uh, and I, I cried when I left because I had a very, it was such an intense t visit that I had had uh, traveling around with somebody who was trying to save these endangered food cultures that had been lost mm. all, pretty much through communism, uh, through the communist era. And um, so I ended up going to the, yeah, the, to the far north into these, the accursed mountains. And for me, what it represented was this idea of, well, wheat and barley and maize and rice took humans only so far in mm -hmm. terms of settling and surviving. And then hum other humans figured out that the, this special relationship with cows, um, sheep, goats, um, meant that although you couldn't grow the crops, the animals could eat the pasture, produce milk, mm -hmm. and then take this energy from the sun, transformed into pasture, combine it with microbes, bacteria, and produce the most delicious food we know, cheese, which could be stored, it's high energy. And what I found in Northern Albania was almost that's the, the kind of the pure example of how it was how people in really harsh high altitude areas where very little would grow could survive mm -hmm. because of again sun into pasture pasture uh, as energy into the um to the animals who could then process that for us to consume as milk and cheese and um i th you you will know a lot more about the biodiversity of the, of the area but i was told by the people who were studying this in terms of a cheese story mm -hmm. that the pasture was oh. it, it hadn't seen yeah. anything like it in terms of the numbers of plants and herbs and and that was then creating this delicious milk rich in mm -hmm. microbes so you didn't need a starter culture to make the cheese it was so alive in yeah. a safe healthy way you know, it's amazing, like the, like you say, like there's an incredible level of endemism in this region, just because of also because of the, the elevation gradients, you have different species of plants growing at different elevations. Mm. I, I found what was really fascinating um, in our studies with different communities. And what else is kind of interesting too, just to note for the listeners is that, you know, in a very small area, you have very different cultures that speak completely distinct languages. Um, mm. And so you can have communities that live in similar ecosystems, but who engage with those ecosystems in very different ways. And mm. one of the things that fascinated me was also the use of, there are certain wild plants that are not edible, but they will harvest to use as kind of a way to kickstart certain cultures of yogurts and cheeses. And, you know, I don't, did you try Kos while you were there as well? This very acidic yogurt drink. Uh, it kind of, I, you know. <laughs> I did. I did. Yeah. yeah I, I think I had that at, at, uh, for 
a, a breakfast one yeah. of the breakfasts which again was just a was, it's was amazing a bounty, really yeah yeah and it'll also, definitely um, replenish your micro gut <laughs> microflora if you if you yeah, ever yeah. like you could you get rid of any kind of you know probiotic pills this stuff mm. <laughs> is the real deal yeah, yeah yeah maybe um not have the the hard spirits as well for breakfast as well <laughs> it's rock, yeah <laughs> sometimes sometimes you know, that that was that was on offer as well yeah. but I, I think what, what what i also loved about this story was i mentioned that era of communism mm-hmm. when so much was lost and actually people went you know towards the end of that process as well hu- serious hunger um mm-hmm. and this relationship between people who understood something that had great value um, was still tucked away in these remote villages not only was it important to save because it was a wonderful food delicious uh really important history they also understood that to keep these villages alive and to give the people there an income because that was a real a serious problem which is oh, why yeah. i think so so many people so much rural depopulation in that in that part of the world and so they they understood that, that if they could bring the cheese back and then if if um chefs in the big towns and and cities um could put it on their menus and tell the story there was a whole economy that could be created uh, and so I, also, I saw wonderful things. So some of it, it was such a bizarre country under communism in terms of the architecture mm-hmm. that existed, because you, as you travel around, you see these concrete bunkers. And it was almost yes. as if this this was a nation on um, almost kind of red, ready to disappear into bunkers. And um, so every, everywhere you look with these bunkers or, or, or um, places where people could uh, act as snipers. People, I, I met somebody who was using one of those as a cheese cave to, to, look, <laughs> to, to look after. So in, in but it works well. This symbolism, really, of this this awful past that they'd experienced, but also this yeah. revival of cultures that had endured bef- you know, through that whole period in those remote mountain villages. Amazing. Well, I can't I can't recommend your book enough to all the listeners. Um, definitely check out. Eating to Extinction by Dan Saladino. And I have one last question to ask you, mm. and I'm sure this is going to be on everyone's mind um, that's listening is, you know, you've traveled to such amazing places and I'm sure experienced such amazing foods. And I know it's hard to say <laughs> what's your absolute favorite, but maybe you can offer us a, a, a couple examples of some of your most interesting food experiences um, that you've encountered mm. during your travels. Mm. Well, I think one, because it just, filled me full of awe because of the Mm. location is going back to that Hadza story because there I was in a part of Africa with so many important archaeological finds that that revealed our history as as Mm. humans as homo sapiens and to be eating a food that probably gave them energy um, from these baobab trees um, I, uh, located with the assistance of a bird that had a conversation with the the hunters, that is an extremely special experience. I will never forget. Um, but also, there is the story of an orange in Sicily um, that has become endangered because there is now these monocultures that exist in other parts of the world, and so on the island of Sicily, it became economically um, tough. For farmers to carry on growing and i was meeting farmers who were telling me it was their last harvest 
for this fruit that had been on the island for a thousand years. That means a lot to me because my name originates from the island of Sicily. My father uh, is from Sicily. As a child, I used to travel over to Sicily yeah. for some holidays to stay with my nonna. So I think the Hadza from mind-blowing, you know, experience of global food history and us, Sicily and the Orange for extremely personal reasons of memories of working, walking through citrus groves as a child. And that was my first experience of being on a farm. That's amazing. What a life and what an adventure around these foods. Well, thank you so much. And Dan, tell us, when is your book going to be out and where can listeners um, find out more about this amazing work that you're doing? Mm. Well, the um, the book is being published on February the 1st mm -hmm. um, uh, by FSG. And uh, in terms of the other work that I do, the, my, my radio program, is it's called um, The Food Program on BBC Radio 4. Uh, it's been running now for more than 40 years. It was established wow. in 1979 by a pioneering journalist who understood a lot of the issues that we are, we've been talking about. And he understood that by the end of the 1970s, much of Britain's traditional foods were disappearing. And so he wanted a program that could tell that story. And that's the program I work on today. So I'm carrying on that legacy as well. That's great. Well, lots of, lots of great resources to turn to. Thanks again, Dan. Thanks so much, Cassandra. It's, it's a great program. So I'm really, really honored to be on it. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. You can find this and all of our other shows at foodiepharmacology.com. You can also catch the video version of this episode on the Teach Ethnobotany YouTube channel. I want to thank our producers to Christine Roth and Rob Cohen for bringing us forward into season four. And I'm looking forward to many seasons in the future. Thanks so much for, um, for tuning in today and I'll see you next time. <laughs>